This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. It is my intention to uh, travel a bit further down this Roman road, and I call it the Roman road because he's he's writing to the Romans, these Roman Christians, and he's moved along this road, and we're going to move a bit beyond and to chapter 12. However, this is spooky stuff to try to hook on to such an amazing series of messages. And uh, you talk about a recipe for a potential flop. This is it. But uh, I, I, uh, it kind of reminds me of an of a incident that took place a number of years ago when I was a whole lot younger. Had the privilege of hearing one more masterful pulpiteer called Glenn Patterson. And uh, there were few, uh, few who could compare with him. And one Sunday morning, he preached this amazing, amazing message. And in the congregation, there was a young pastor, a young Bible college student. He had never pastored yet, but he aspired to be one. And he was taking copious notes. I mean, he was jotting everything down because he had a purpose. You see, he was scheduled to preach at a neighboring church the following week. And you guessed it, that week rolled around, and that morning at that neighboring church, he preached Reverend Patterson's marvelous message. He preached it. That night, he came back to the local church where Brother Patterson pastored, and at the end of the service, he said, Brother Patterson, that message you preached last Sunday, he said, I took that message I preached it over yonder, and he said, I made a masterpiece out of it. (laughs) And we couldn't help but smile as as we imagined the the masterpiece he had made of Pastor Patterson's marvelous message. Well, I I, I think it's rather presumptuous, and and, uh, so I feel the opposite this morning. I honestly do, to take uh, what our brother has presented to us and try to build on it, but I'll do the best I can. Let's go to uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I want you to listen carefully. Notice how Paul begins. What is the first word? Therefore. Therefore. Now, I had a wonderful instructor back in the day who would tell us, fellas, Whenever you in Scripture come to the word therefore, stop and find out why it's therefore. I think that's good admonition. So when Paul is saying therefore, he's alluding back to all that has been spoken prior to this. And let's just bear in mind that uh, chapters 1, all the way, those that Pastor uh, Joe treated, 5, 6, 7, and 8, all the way through 11, are one continuum. There weren't any chapter divisions uh, originally, nor verse divisions for that matter. Paul is building all the way until he comes to Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, 
And that's a strong word. I plead, I beg, <laughs> I conjole, <laughs> I exhort, whatever. What other synonym can we put in there? I urge you, I plead with you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that has transpired, in view of all that I've told you, offer yourselves. Offer yourself. You who are familiar with the King James, he, it, it is rendered present, present. From the same root word we get present. Make a present. Make a, that's where I get my title. You're urged to bring a present. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So on the basis of a world of mercies and graces that God has bestowed upon us, Paul is literally begging them, listen, voluntarily make a present to the Lord, and that present is your own body. So I think it's incumbent upon us, even though it's a daunting task, to try to catch a synopsis, if you will, of the previous messages that Pastor Joe has brought to us. And this is, I hope I do an adequate job of encapsulating what he taught us over the last number of weeks. So chapter 5, Paul contrasts Adam. Adam, on the one hand, who ushered sin into the world, with Christ, who brought righteousness. He, that is, Paul, makes clear that as sons and daughters of Adam, we all entered this world with the sinful nature of Adam. Good news, isn't it? Oh, glory. Hallelujah. That includes me. That includes you. You were born a son or a daughter of Adam. It, uh, and then he, he further illuminates to our minds uh, the blessings and the curse of the law. Have you ever wondered why was the law given? The Old Testament law and prophets. He says there, it was a blessing. It was a blessing in that it taught us, instructed us, schooled us in what sin is. We may not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. In fact, Paul said himself, there was a time that I was alive without the law. I didn't know. But the law came and I died. I became aware of what the law was. But while it was a blessing, the law was a blessing in that it alerts us and schools us as to what good is and what sin is, what God expects it had a curse to it in some sense, in that it had no power to change us. It had no power to make us good on the inside. Oh, that's a frustration, isn't it? So I thank God for his schooling, but oh, he says it has no power to change us inwardly. 
So that's chapter 5. Then the pastor moved us to chapter 6. Paul outlines what it means to be changed. This is good news. Changed from sons and daughters of Adam to be in Christ. To be sons and daughters of Christ. Paul here elaborates that by being in Christ. Oh, get this. This is what pastor was emphasizing. We allow Christ's power to conquer sin in our lives. Thus, as Pastor Joe emphasized, we're no longer. We need not be slaves to sin. Not because we're good or because we grit our teeth, because we say, I'm going to do it, but because we allow God's power to come in and fill us and work out through us, and his power makes me what I ought to be. Man, that's, a, that's such a crucial thing to discover. Because it will only lead to frustration if you try to do it yourself. Will you allow Christ's power to change you? And the pastor admonished us, as did Paul, that we're to yield now as children of God, and being in Christ, we're to yield the members of our bodies, not any longer to sin. There was a time when we yielded the members of our body, my eyes, my ears, my tongue, my mouth, my legs, my feet. We, 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 we used them as instruments of righteousness. But now, as children of God, we're to consciously, purposefully yield these members as instruments of righteousness. And you can do that every morning. You can do that as a, as a pattern of your morning devotions. Lord, here I am. Take my thoughts, take my ears, my eyes, even my feet. And they're yours. You guide them today and make them instruments of righteousness. Oh, I like what you reminded us of, Pastor, though, that periodically Satan will come along and say, let me borrow. Let me borrow your mind. And oh, didn't you like what he, he want, Satan wants to borrow our thumbs. He reminded us of that because it's with our thumbs sometimes we enter into worlds we have no business being in. The internet and, and eyes shouldn't be seeing. Hello. <laughs> and so we should declare every day, if you need to every day, To yourself, you need to declare it. To God, you need to declare it. To the world, you need to declare it. And you even need to declare it to the devil. These are God's instruments. And I've already given them to him. And you can't borrow them. Hallelujah. Chapter 7. In this chapter, Paul makes it crystal clear, get this, that man cannot achieve, cannot achieve or accomplish the righteousness that God expects us from us through human effort. I've already said that, but I'll say it again by trying to keep the rules. Nobody knew this better than Paul. He called himself the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had been steeped in the Pharisaical system. 
of keeping the rules, all the rules, multitude of rules. Nobody was better at it than he. But he himself testified to it, nothing but frustration. He said it this way, the good that I would do, I do not. And what I would not do, I do. That that expresses the plight of a lot of us who are trying to do it our own. And the result is inevitable in the long term. You might be able to be good for just a little while, but you'll inevitably backslide into your old behaviors and your old habits. You can't do it. Now, Paul is saying, oh, wretched man that I am. And a lot of people take comfort in that. They say, whoa, even Paul said, the good that I do, I do not. What I would not do, that I do. Let me try to make clear to you that he is using what some have called the editorial eye when he gives himself as an illustration. This man who is teaching these Roman Christians that we need not, we should not be a slave to sin is not himself testifying, I want you to know I'm a slave to sin. Okay, I just can't. But you, you can be free from the slavery of sin. Let me illustrate. This actually happened. So I'm telling you a story. I'm driving along one wintry day, and I say to my wife, Honey, is that road slick out there? It's raining. Is that black ice? And then I did a stupid thing. I do a stupid thing. I hit the brakes going 65 miles an hour. That's not wise. And as the thing creamed out of, uh, out of, uh, out of uh, control, I, 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 turned, I, I, I turned the wheel, you know, into the slide. It didn't do too much good. We find ourselves, we find ourselves traveling backwards at 60 miles an hour. And there's not a thing I can do. And my wife is great with child, great, great, great with child, his first baby. And we ended up craning off and sticking in the nose of that plummet into, into the bank. I'm telling this, to, I, I, I did this, I did that. I, I'm talking to you first person present. That doesn't mean I'm in the car right now. Doesn't mean that I hit the brake right now. It didn't, doesn't mean that I... I'm conversing with my I'm using the editorial eye. And Paul is saying, I know what it's like to try to live a redemptive life in the pharisaical method of trying to keep the rules. Oh, wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he exclaims, giving his own answer, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer, not in your human effort to try, but allowing Jesus to fill you and allowing his power to flow through you and enabling you. What a marvel, what a marvel. Well, then we move to chapter 8. Try to keep this as brief as I can. 
In this chapter, Paul enlightens us as to the marvel of not only being in Christ, but what it means to be living in the Spirit. We have the privilege, the opportunity of living in the Spirit. And you'll remember that Paul and Pastor outlined for us the fruit of the flesh, death-dealing fruit of the flesh. Over against that, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness. The fruit of the Spirit. We can live in the energy of the Spirit. He didn't go to chapters 9, 10, and 11, and neither will I. But in, just, just try to encapsulate it. In these verses, remember Paul is writing to the Romans. They're Gentiles. He tries to tell them it was God's purpose and God's intention to reveal his righteousness and salvation through the nation of Israel. They were God's chosen people. But because the Jews rejected Christ, he had to turn from them, and in mercy, he turned to the Gentiles, to you Romans, and can I, you Elrodians. Huh? We're all Gentiles. Well, there may be a Jew or two in here. But he turned to us. What an honor. What a privilege. And he said he took us who were aliens and he, he grafted us into the life-giving vine. He grafted us in. And then he goes on to warn them, if God did not spare the natural branches and had to cut them off, how, how serious it is for us who have been grafted in to remain in Christ connected vibrantly in a living relationship with Christ. Well, that brings us to chapter 12. And that's the reason Paul says, Therefore, my brethren, all these benefits, all these blessings, all these mercies, all these graces, I beseech you, I beg you, I, I plead with you, bring a present. It's, it's only reasonable. It's only sensible. It's, it's an act of worship that you should just be glad to make. Present your bodies, offer your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Maybe we ought to read it again. Therefore, I urge you, and again, I remind you that uh, the King James, many of us grew up with the King James, and I memorized the King James more than the NIV. But I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer or to present, from the same word we get present, make a present of yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And then he goes on, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be a transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will in your life. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's kind of, Pastor, a feeble effort to encapsulate 
the marvelous truths he shared with us in detail. But what is Paul trying to say to us now in chapter 12? Let's move on to the first thing that I want to impress upon you, as did Paul. Paul urges these Christian brothers, in view of all these amazing mercies, to make a present of their bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, when he talks about living sacrifices, he no doubt has in mind the sacrifices that were offered to God according to the Jewish traditions. Those animals were slain. They were laid out on the altar. Can I tell you? I don't know if they went there that willingly. But once they were on that altar, all resistance ceased to be. Do you understand? They were dead. (laughs) They didn't buck. They didn't resist. They could be quartered up. And they were to be used exclusively for holy purposes. God could use those sacrifices any way he chose. Are you following me now? Paul is saying in the same way, not dead sacrifices. You're living. I want you to be living sacrifices presented to God with no more resistance. (laughs) No more resistance. No more kickback. You make a present to God as living sacrifices. Isn't that beautiful? Not forced. Not threatened. It's voluntary. He doesn't hold a cleaver over your head. If you don't do this, you're going to go to hell. And I don't want to convey that idea. I want to say it's enticing. It's beautiful. Why would we want to do any less? Let us present ourselves as a present. Here I am, God. The idea is one of full and complete surrender and consecration. Here I am. Lord, I take you not only as my Savior, but I take you as my Sovereign. A lot of us want him as Savior. We're not too interested in him as Sovereign. Lord, I want you not only as a resident, but I want you as President of my life. Huh? I don't want there to be, you don't want there to be, even one area of our life that is off limits to God. Amen? Lord, you, you are my all in all, and I give my everything to you. Now, for some, this consecration and surrender comes in a moment of time. For others of us who are a little more hard-headed, like this German, it was a little more incremental. But I reached that point where I got tired of the frustration. And I said, Lord, take the kickback. Take the resistance. I give it to you. I like how, it may be a poor illustration, but I liked how the old-time preachers used to say it. Bring to God and put on the altar the unknown bundle. Now, what in the world is that supposed to mean? That means we don't know the future. We don't know what God is going to call us to. Do you? Anybody have a crystal ball? I didn't know. But I said, Lord, all that I am, this little skick scrawny hillbilly from 
the hills of Missouri, everything I am, everything I may become, everything that I might possess, I give to you. Whoopee! I did not know all that included. You don't either. And periodically across the years, God has pulled stuff out and said, yeah, it means going through Hurricane Laura and Delta back to back. Now that's a silly, uh, but for some it might mean cancer. For others, it might mean marital breakup. God, I didn't know you meant that. When I consecrated my all to you, and down through the years, it's necessary to keep moving our head in the same direction. I didn't know it meant that, Lord. I didn't know it meant that. But I say, yes, Lord. If that's my lot, and if that's your plan for my life, we can make it through this together. Amen? Hello? Yes? We place it all. God, take me in my entirety. Have you done that? Have you done that? Oh, seriously. You're saved. You love the Lord. You want to do what's right, but have you really surrendered all? But having emphasized that, now let me take it to the next level of Paul's teaching. He emphasizes to them this, uh, this volunteer, voluntary surrender of their entire bodies is their reasonable, reasonable act of worship. Again, in view of these amazing mercies. And I think what he is telling us, in essence, crowd, really, we need not be afraid of the will of God in our lives. Oh, how preposterous is it to believe the lies of the devil. Oh, you got to be careful of surrendering everything to God. You just don't know what he's going to call you to do. The God who makes us, the God who has our ultimate good in mind, huh? can be trusted, trusted people. For me to just say, yes, my hand's off. Take me, Lord. Do with me whatever you want to do. Amen, I'm yours. It reminds me of a story that old Uncle Bud Robinson. Now, this, this dates me. This goes back to a great preacher of another era. He, he relates the story when he was, he was younger, farm boy. And, and he was kind of puzzled that the old milk cow hadn't come up. She normally comes up of an evening, regular time, but she hadn't come up. And they wondered where she was. Darkness had set in. The moon was up uh, bright, so it wasn't that she couldn't find her way home. He went out to find her, and he found her down in the onion patch, uh, eating onions. That's another story. But he's driving her back to the barn, and uh, the moon is shining brightly. And back in those days, they had the old hay mow, you know, stacked hay outside. And the moon was shining, and it cast a menacing shadow 
uh, from that hay mow. And when the old cow got next to that, that uh, hay mow, she shied away from it. That, that uh, shadow made her spooky of what was, and he, he was heard to say, you old fool, you're scared of what you ought to be full of. And sometimes we get scared of God, scared of what he might ask of us. <laughs> you old fools, <laughs> you're scared of what you ought to be full of. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? We needn't be afraid. The effect of this surrender is that once and for all, God is enshrined in my heart and life as master of my law, of my life. You're the boss. Amen? I'm no longer in control. You're in control. That's a wonderful, wonderful surrender. I, uh, I'm tempted here to illustrate. Uh, back in a younger day, I, I, I always loved horses. And um, I, I somehow didn't like the methodology of breaking a horse, you know? Breaking a horse. I didn't even like the I didn't even like the language. And so I heard about this thing called horse whispering. It's real. I read everything I could read. I watched all the videos. Essentially what you have to do is learn how to speak horse. <laughs> if you know how to speak horse, they can understand what you want. Now, once in a while, you'll have an old maverick. They call them mavericks for a reason. You just can't do anything with it. That'll kill you. But most of the time, it's amazing. I don't have time to go through it all, obviously. But the last one I trained was a horse called Star. I called her Star because she had a little spot right up there, the only thing white, you know, on her forehead. And, and I'll never forget, she'd never been trained, never been ridden. I got her in a round pin. I began to drive her around. I stood in the middle, drove her around the ring again, kept her feet moving, kept her feet moving, kept her feet moving. Oh, she wanted to stop. She was scared of me. She wanted nothing to do with me. She was right out there on the perimeter, running and running. If she tried to stop, no, no. Keep going. I made her move, made her move. And pretty soon, probably within 20 minutes, I saw her going. Well, you got you to talk horse to understand that. <laughs> what she was saying is, uh, uh, you are the boss. You are the boss. And I really do. I really do want to rest. And I really would like to come and join up with you. If, you, if, if you're around a mayor, a dominant mayor, and their little colt comes up and they kind of swing their head out, you, well, you watch. That little colt will go, Oh, I didn't mean anything by that, Mama. <laughs> and so I turned my back to Star, kind of at a quartering. And believe it or not, even though she'd been afraid of me and been running out there, she broke away from the ring and came and stood right at my shoulder. And I turned around and rewarded her. And through a series of various lessons and talking horse, 
I, I don't think it was more than 45 minutes I asked her with a gentle pressure to lay down. Now, I want to tell you, that's the ultimate surrender for a horse. They're a fright and flight. And to lay down, woo-hoo, that means ultimate surrender. But she laid down for me flat. I sat on her. <laughs> I sat on her shoulder. I sat on her neck. She didn't resist. And then I got off and just watched her. And she raised her head, and I said, uh-uh. In a little while, she raised it again and looked at me, and I said, uh-uh. And she laid there until I said, you can get up now. You say, boy, I don't know. Yeah, it's what you call gentling a horse. We don't even use the term break the horse. We gentle the horse. Can I tell you something? She never discovered that she could buck. Ever. Never. She so trusted me as I moved along these lessons that uh, I don't know, to this day, I doubt she knows what bucking is all about. I was glad. I, I, I told this story, and it's true. I was just, I had told my son when I went down to Louisiana seven months ago, now it's about eight and a half. I said, Mark, come and, come and get the horses. I don't want to trust them here by, with nobody to look after them. Come and get them. And so he had them, and I haven't seen Star by this time for about, oh, eight and a half, nine months. When I got up there to my son's the other day, there were all the horses all in a cluster over here, this side of the big corral, and I wasn't even thinking horses. Mark and I were headed back to the woods, and we were traveling down this little lane, and we were talking with one another, but I noticed out of the corner of my eye when Star heard my voice, her head goes, boom, and she broke away from all the herd, and she comes trotting over to the fence. <laughs> and I understood, horse. Hi! Where have you been? And we, we enjoyed one another and loved on one another. Stupid story. But God wants to link up with you. He wants to fellowship with you. And he knows your language, and he wants you to know his. And when you're communicating, there's a bond like no other. And it's a surrender. That, that, that horse, that horse is so useful to me. She'll do anything I ask her to do. But in that condition prior to her surrender, <laughs> she wasn't worth a plug nickel. I might have sold her for dog food until she became gentle and obedient. Let's go to the last because that leads me into it. Effective and victory, effectiveness and victory in the Christian life is tied to surrender. Crowd, this is important. The measure of your success and the measure of your effectiveness will be determined largely by the degree of your surrender to God. Hello? Please hear that. 
Your effectiveness and your victory will be largely determined by the measure of your surrender to God. You remember the words of Jesus recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 12 and 24? Truly, truly, Jesus says, truly, truly, let me drive this home. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now he's talking about his own death. If I don't go to Calvary, my life will be very limited. But I must die. But if I die, there will be a world of fruit. But the principle is the same with regard to you because we're so identified with the cross. You must die too. Not physically, yeah, ultimately we will, but you must die to your own self-will and the determination to do your own thing and surrender wholly to God. But if you die, you will bear much fruit. And then he said, be not... Be not conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That same word, and I'm, I'm bringing this to a close, I hope. That word transformed is metamorphosis. The same process, in some sense, that goes on with a caterpillar that turns into a butterfly. Everything about it changes. Its appetite changes. Its, its, uh, its appearance changes. Its... Its uh, geography changes. It's, it has a totally different existence. God says, I want to do that for you. Amen. I bring this to a close. I, I could go on and on. But I want to tell a story, <laughs> the precious tender story, that a great preacher of a generation past, Lawrence Hicks, Nazarene evangelist, used to tell. He, he was from Kentucky, and I guess he had drawn this story out of his own experience. But he told the story of this widowed mom. This being Mother's Day, maybe this is appropriate. She was very, very, very poor. Her husband had been killed in the coal mines just a, week, a year or so previous to that. And they had this little, she has this little toddler. They live in this little shanty. They hardly have enough groceries to put on the table. But it's approaching Christmas time. And uh, it means nothing to this little kid. He had never had a present in his life. And he, in fact, it was kind of depressing. All the other kids would trot out their new bikes or their new scooters. And every Christmas it was the same for him, for as he knew. But what he didn't know is that a little bit prior to Christmas, the Salvation Army people had come by the house while he was away at school. And they had brought several bags of groceries for the Christmas meal, but they brought something for the little guy. It wasn't whole much by our standards. It was a teddy bear, just a, well, beautiful, brand new teddy bear. And uh, Christmas Day dawned bright and cold, and he got up kind of thinking, same old, same old day. But when he went into the room where most people had a tree there, there was this gift all wrapped up. 
His mouth flew open. Is that, is that mine? Is it for me? Yes, honey. It's, it's yours. And he, you know how kids do. He tore that thing open. And here was a beautiful little teddy bear. Man, to us, to our kids, they probably, eh. But it was, it, was the, it was an amazing gift. It went everywhere with him. He took it to bed with him. He took it out when he was playing. When he was playing cars in the dirt, that teddy bear was with him. He even took it to school. They made fun of him, but he didn't care. I mean, this was his priceless possession. But over time, you know what happens. The fuzz comes off and, and it gets kind of slick instead of, you know, having the fuzzy all over it. A button eye fell out. A stitching came loose in one of the arms and some of the stuffing fell out. It's a pitiful looking thing. But it didn't make any difference. It went with him everywhere he went. It was the most... It was the most cherished possession he ever had. One day, several, several months later, he awakened rather late, wondering why his mom, his mom had always gotten him up, but she wasn't there to wake him up. He got up and stretched, cleared his eyes, and he went to the other room, and he hollered, Mom! Mom! Nothing but emptiness. He went into her bedroom and his heart froze. For there was mom laying there, lifeless. She was in a coma. He didn't know that. He thought she was dead. He went screaming to the neighbors, Mommy's dead! Mommy's dead! Mommy's dead! They came running, called the ambulance. They took her to the charity hospital. They knew that's where she'd have to go. They had no money, no insurance. When she got there, they'd, they did evaluation, diagnosis, and they knew that she was dreadfully ill. And there was only one thing that would save her life. It would require surgery. And there was only one surgeon in that area that uh, could perform that surgery. He was known to be exorbitantly expensive. He, he treated the elite. They said, well, we'll give it a shot, and they called him. They explained to him, this is a widow lady. She doesn't have any money. She only has this little boy. He's her whole world. She's his whole world. But she's, she's not going to survive without this surgery. He said, Okay. I'll take it. Bring her, tr transport her to my hospital, Immaculate Hospital. And he performed the surgery. And miraculously, her life was spared, though there was a weeks and weeks and weeks of convalescence. And ultimately, finally, she came home and to this little boy's sheer delight. But he heard the rumors. He heard the rumors. Boy, I wonder what kind of doctor bill they're going to have. How will they ever, ever pay it? They had nothing. 
And somehow being the only quote-unquote man of the house, it kind of fell on his shoulder. And he just kind of somehow felt the responsibility. And one day while she was busy about the tasks of the home, she didn't realize he, he had gone missing. And he had gone to that hospital where this famous surgeon practiced. And without any formality, he just walked down the hallway and he knew the door to knock on and without even <laughs> invitation, he walked right into the presence of this famous surgeon. And the surgeon looked up and said, Son, what, what brings you here today? And he's too timid to even look up, clutching his little security bear. He said, Doctor, Mr. Doctor, you saved my mommy's life. You saved her. You saved my mommy's life. And I'm so happy. I wouldn't want to live if I didn't have my mom. And I know we owe you lots of money. But we ain't got no money. But I, I've come in here today to pay you for what we owe you. And with that, he put up on that desk an old beat-up teddy bear with the eye hanging out and slick and dirty and stuffing coming out the arm. And when he didn't hear a response right away, he looked up timidly, and there was that surgeon, great big tears welling up in his eyes. He said, son, I accept your gift. In fact, I believe this is the most awesome gift I've ever been given. And the bill is paid in full for him. She'd know that. And that doctor did a strange thing. He had a glass case built, put it out in the foyer of that hospital. Good night. In that glass case was this beat-up, bedraggled, one-eyed, one-armed, slick, dirty teddy bear. Most people had thrown in the trash. But at the bottom was a caption that said, greatest gift I've ever been given. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.